What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the American Family Farmer, the weekly radio program for the small independent farm owners and those interested in how your food gets from the farm to your table. Here's your host, lifelong family farmer, Doug Steffen. Time now for the Good Day American Family Farmer. I'm Doug Steffen. The overview of what's going on in the world of agriculture, important. We assess it every week. A lot of things that are going on in the world of agriculture. I like to think this was your audio connection every week uh, to what's happening on the family farm. I'm not really interested, uh, frankly, the purpose of this program is not to highlight what a lot of the big ag outfits are doing, uh, get big advertisers and that sort of thing. What we're here to do is solve problems that are created by government and big ag uh, and situations that may exist that have nothing to do with either of those two. The weather, for example, uh, the uh, money markets, what's going on, commodities markets. Uh, this program is aimed at helping the American family farmer, uh, family-run ag businesses, and the locavore movement, supporting people who want to support the American family farmer. And here with me this week on the program is Andrea Hazard, known as Andy. Uh, she grew up on a family farm. As a matter of fact, I think uh, from what I'm uh, told, Andy, if I may call you Andy, uh, Absolutely. You got a lot of fond memories of growing up. I could, you and I could probably spend half of the time we have together today just talking about what we remember about the first barn. What do you remember <laughs> as a as a child? What did and when I I'm thinking about uh, I just moved from one farm to another and had to take all the old grain bins, the wooden grain bins out, and to put them somewhere else. You don't see those anymore, but. When we used to get the bags of grain, 100-pound bags of grain, and you put them in the bins, uh, it was this something, um, whether it's it, it's the tradition of farming and things like that that I hold on to. How about you? You know, I am very similar. I am a relatively young farmer, but growing up next to my grandparents, they instilled in me a lot of the old ways in the history of farming. And yes, I have fond memories of the, the sweet smell of freshly ground feed, you know, being, being put in our wooden bins in the barn to feed all the animals. And it's just, it's a bygone era and it, it, but I miss it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm just sort of, uh, my mind is wafting off here thinking about what you just said, thinking about what all, of us. I can remember I was the strongest kid around because I used to, when I was too young to know any different, lift 100-pound bags of grain and throw them in the bin and <laughs> uh, jugs of milk and hay and all that stuff. But I'm uh, reminded of the realities of what's happening now versus what happened when we were kids uh, in terms of grain, for example. There's a study that's out this week uh, that suggests that for most of our lifetime, your lifetime, my lifetime, uh, the grains that were produced by Pfizer, especially chicken feed, was loaded with arsenic. And so you think, okay, 
we have this wonderful fond memory. You wonder, was there any arsenic in uh, the feed that we had? And I, I'm going to guess that the answer is no to that because it's just been in the last uh, 10, 15 years that research has found that adding some of these things to the grains will make the chickens, in this case, grow faster. But I wonder, mm -hmm. as you think again about uh, the kind of farming that you and uh, is it your grandfather, Earl, is he still in business? Is he still around? He's, he's not with us anymore. Um, the operation currently is my father, Ken, and my brother, Adam, and then I have my little wild child sideline, I guess. How's that? What is your wild child sideline? <laughs> well, they're um, conventional uh, farmers, so they do all GMO and um, all that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. just due to the way that I entered farming and there not being enough land uh, to support everyone, I had to kind of come in in a different direction. And uh, my hope is to be able to to make a living on maybe 50 or 100 acres. Mm -hmm. I think that's very doable. Frankly, I you think can find so too. A I... lot of the uh, suburban communities, I happen to live in a suburban, my dairy farm is in a town called Framingham, uh, which is west of Boston, about 26 miles. And when I say I have a dairy farm in Framingham, people look at me like I had two heads because Framingham <laughs> is known for shopper's world, for traffic, for uh, suburbia, uh, so the fact that I have 114 acres put aside, stuck aside uh, in this community is rather a rarity. Uh, and, and so you're dealing with, uh, we had a, this maybe you can uh, share in my frustration here. Last night, um, a group of the farmers on the Agricultural Advisory Committee went to the selectmen to discuss things that are going on in town that are not farmer friendly. And you find this out when you, you know, realize that the push on the land has created homes, developments everywhere, McMansions, and nobody understands farming. They all say, well, I want to go to the farm and watch the cows get milked, or they want to go pick their own lettuce or whatever it is. But they don't know what it really entails because um, we have, especially in suburbia and areas, now, I don't know uh, that much about where you are, but I'm going to guess that when you talk about using that much land, that land is in short supply, is it? Well, you know, here land is not... We have our fair share of sprawl, but it's not in short supply. But the price is extremely high because of our proximity to Chicago. Right. What town are you in again? I'm in Winnebago County. Winnebago County. Yep. I... Top center of the state of Illinois, bordering Wisconsin. All right. So you are uh, a little bit east of Chicago then, in a manner of speaking. Uh, right? I'm west of east. Chicago, oh, actually. West, I'm sorry. Just, yeah, yep. yeah. On the other side. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's great agricultural land, and you've got the heritage there. How much of the land that you're using was the land your grandfather farmed? Did you get some of it from him? All of it. It is yeah, all of it. All, is, yeah. yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I live at a different farm, but I am farming land directly behind the homestead where my father grew up and that I grew up. Mm -hmm. And is it all produce? Are you aiming at selling to retail? How is this land being used, and how are you faring at Hazard Free Farm? <laughs> well, we're doing very well. Uh, in 2007, I started out with a vegetable operation um, just north of the home place where I live and um, expressed an interest in growing grains, but Dad wasn't ready and kind of gave me a flat no. But as he stepped back from the main operation so that my brother could take over, he had more time, and that was 
2011-2012, we started growing small grains, and we had the idea that we were going to get them ground. I was selling vegetables in Chicago at the time, and so it made sense to just start handing out some samples to my chef. And the business has grown. It's done very well, but it's definitely very specialized and different than, you know, commodity agriculture because everything that I grow is direct marketed and value-added. Isn't that the only way you really uh, can make it work? Most people who are doing what you're doing now are realizing when I – uh, started. I was fed up with being paid ridiculous amounts of money for my milk going into the pool, so I decided to uh, clean up my act and sell raw milk, and that's mm. what I did. And and so I found my own market, and uh, it was for as long as I could keep it going, thriving, uh, frankly, uh, mm-hmm. because you get away from what people. If you find the market, the local boys, uh, they're going to support what you are doing, and they understand it costs money to buy good food, which is when, yeah. when you go to the grocery store. People are so foolish. They go to the grocery store, and they think, all right, well, I can buy it cheaper there than I can from the farmer. So I don't know if you saw this or not. The uh, info is out on how much Whole Foods makes per square foot uh, in their oh, stores, of 400 and however many stores. They, make, they are the second most profitable behind the marijuana distributors in Colorado, the most profitable per square foot store of any of retail, anything, food, clothing, furniture, whatever it is. It compares to Macy's average profit per square foot in each store is $180. The average per, per foot, per square foot profit in Whole Foods is $940 a foot. So, Holy cow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So for those of you who want to spend money because you think you're getting a great deal at Whole Foods, most people know they aren't. Whole paycheck, it's rumored to be. I mean, it's usury. So go to the find, especially this time of year, go find Andrea. Go find her farm. Go online to hazardfreefarm.com. We'll continue this overview of what she's doing. And through the course of the hour, the idea is to give you ideas that you can use to be successful on your American family farm. I'm Doug Steffen with Andrea Hazard, uh, who is a farm brat. That's what I call people like you and me that came up. We're uh, farm kids. Um, Now you have uh, been able to take what you learned growing up and uh, apply it to the land that you have there. Uh, You seem to be wrapped around your grandfather's legacy. Uh, The people who have been around for a long time who are the influencers you had, I had, Many others, there are fewer of them around. But the average age of farmers on American family farms is about 65 years old. And I wonder in a moment if we can talk about how the older farmers have uh, sort of changed their ways. They've adapted and adopted uh, the organic ways that are more successful, especially for the locavores, people who want to know that they're getting good quality food, uh, those who pursue organic food, Uh, And farming are going to make more money. That's basically the bottom line. Survive better. And uh, the theory is that you're going to have better products. We'll talk about that with Andrea, find out whether she agrees with that and what her story is more specifically. At 21 after, this is Good Day's American Family Farmer.
continuing along now with this week's American Family Farmer. I'm Doug Steffen at 23 past the hour with Andrea Hazard, uh, who is a uh, farm family person. Andy, as she is known to her friends, uh, she is working uh, toward a goal which many people her age are doing, uh, men and women. But I think what's very interesting here are the number of women, Andy, who are going into uh, the field uh, literally and figuratively, uh, the way that you're being inspired or have been inspired uh, by your family is not always the rule. I'm sure you have plenty of friends who have gone into fam- uh, into farming, uh, but they didn't come from the family. Uh, they just decided they were going to school or whatever it is. This is what they wanted to do. And they're making it on a lot less than the uh, 80 acres of land that you're talking about. I guess it depends on what they do. Uh, I, I had somebody on the program, I think, a week or two ago, had only four and a half, five acres uh, that um, they were farming and trying to make a living at it. I think that's especially hard to do unless you're involved in acu, uh, aqua uh, farming, aqua or hydraulic farming. Uh, but anyway, let's talk about your elders and what they taught you and whether or not the move that started, that's grabbed on now, the organic farming business started with their generation or your generation. Um. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In the Midwest, there aren't a lot of organic farmers. And I was tapped this winter by a group called the Agrarian Elders. And around New Year's Eve, I received an email from um, those of you that are in organic farming probably know the name Elliot Coleman. And it was an invitation to uh, Eslin Institute in California to meet with the Agrarian Elders group. In 2014, they met there for a week and discussed uh, the history of the movement and the challenges and the obstacles that are going to come for the younger generation. And so 2016, half of those elders met and tapped younger farmers to bring into the conversation. And it Um, not knowing anyone when I went, I was quite nervous, but I found once I got there that I was amongst my, my tribe as, as we like to call it. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was an incredible experience and the amount of knowledge in the room, the experience in the room, and to be able to experience the organic movement through their eyes and understand how hard they fought, uh, you know, to get there, to get this movement where it's at. And these people are the ones that that spurred the movement. Um, you know, Jack Lazar, Butterworks Farm, wrote The Organic Grain Grower, and Elliot has a whole host of tools and books. And so, yeah, we spent the week uh, tackling a lot of issues and and discussing things the thing that also enters into this is you find or at least i have found in traveling in the circle that i travel in which is the traditional farmer and the new age farmer if i can use that is there's a certain spiritual belief and philosophy talk about that if you will absolutely that was definitely um one of our points of discussion you know, I think that when you're truly involved in organic farming, at the at the at the truest uh, definition of organic, it's all about 
being a steward of the soil and of your animals and of the people that you're producing the food for. And they're definitely in that room. Everyone had uh, a story to tell about their spiritual connection to nature. So this is really, I think, uh, part of what I want to absorb and move into a little bit more uh, when we come back. We'll pause the bottom of the hour here uh, for some news and important announcements. And then as the American Family Farmer continues, I've not had this conversation with anybody who's been on this program in the past year and a half that I've been doing it. So I want to go down this road with Andrea Hazard from Hazard Free Farm. Check out her farm at hazardfreefarm.com. Friends, we are, you're among friends here, the Good Day American Family Farmer Weekly Report, an hour's discussion of what's going on with today's American Family Farmer being challenged at every turn uh, by uh, stupid government decisions. Uh, As you can tell, I'm not a big fan of big government. I think that uh, farmers, I find it distracting having conversations with uh, Andrea Hazard and other people like her who are so close to the land, who are so smart, who have such great experience and bring so many traditions to the land, to be told by some kid who got out of uh, ag school at the age of 26, he's got a book with him, and on page 43 it says, well, you're not supposed to be doing this. Uh, This kid wouldn't know what a sheep felt like uh, to touch or a cow or anything else, and it really bothers me uh, because these are the sorts of people and government incursion and, and all kinds of stupid stuff uh, this is the kind of thing, this has nothing to do with farming, but we see this sort of thing going on, Andy, all over the place. Uh, the state that I live in is Massachusetts, and the House of Representatives there this week passed a bill that will never get through the state Senate, but the fact that it got as far as it did is amazing, but not shocking. They passed a bill that would require dentists' offices to have three showers in them, one for men, one for women, one for transgender people, so that if they were involved in a procedure uh, that somehow or other uh, produced blood on themselves or on the hands of the dentist or anywhere else, that they could go in the shower stall and clean up. And so you think about these things, you think about who it is that's crazy enough to come up with these ideas. More than that, who's crazy enough to vote for this sort of an idea? Then you get a picture as to what farmers are confronted with with things like the Food Safety Enhancement Act, which will not do anything uh, to fix what you're doing on your farm because there's nothing wrong with anything that you're doing on your farm, but yet you're going to be required to fill out lots of paperwork and do this, that, and the other thing that takes away from your knowledge and your time to farm, which is what your customers want you to do, right? Yes, it'll be interesting to see how some of this legislation uh, shakes out. Well, interesting is a nice way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> I try to be positive. You well, know, I do, farm, too. You have to be positive. Yeah, you do, because it's a lot of work and not much return. That's more often than not what happens. I don't view myself as a, a farmer trying to make money. I'm a custodian of some land uh, that's very, very valuable, and I want to save it so that it can be used by others for farming purposes, not to build uh, 49 houses on or whatever happens to most of the farms, certainly around here. And that gets back to my spiritual philosophy 
of um, why it is that we are connected to the land. I am, and I'm going to ask you to share your experience and thoughts with me. Many people listening to this program who are farmers will tell you that they're religious. They go to church every Sunday and that sort of thing. And that's swell if it does it for you. It doesn't happen to do it for me. Um, I find the best spiritual time that I have is out on the tractor mowing hay, baling hay, doing yes. that sort of thing. And I wonder what you're, what you're thinking when you're out working. I saw a picture of you holding a hoe. And a, yes, and, yes. I mean, so well, what, you know, it, I came into, I grew up on a farm, but I went to college and I ended up with a degree in um, urban forestry. And then I parlayed into the native restoration arena. And then from there, I went into landscaping and I worked at nurseries and and then I began farming and vegetables and now I do grain. And so I feel like at this point, I have a very interesting kind of 360 degree view of um, our interactions with nature. Mm -hmm. And I never, ever cease to be amazed when I'm out there. It's it is a wonderful time to ponder great philosophical questions. It really is. <laughs> uh, you know, when you're pulling thistle out of the field and, and cursing because your fingers are filled with uh, prickers. But but there is a lot of respect for the plant in the way that it works with its mother root. And, you know, it it, it is a love-hate relationship. It's tenacious. It. You learn yes. tenacity from things like thistleweed. Yes, yes you certainly do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be able to to navigate that space, but yeah, I I too find that um, that nature is the answer for me. You know, whenever the, the sort of rainy clouds are over my head, I can just mm-hmm. step outside, and no matter the weather, there's beauty to be found. Yeah, and that's what it is, kind of. If you were connected, and people have sort of chuckled at me when over the years I've talked about my philosophy of life. I get very discouraged and down in the fall, go into the winter months. It's a horrible time for me. I just don't like it because it represents death. If I give a, 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 a thorough psychological evaluation of myself, I don't. I like not to have to think about the dark and the cold and the end, but the life that comes from the beginning. So when January comes around, the seed catalogs come out, and you can start thinking and planning. Maybe you plant a little stuff early on. Uh, so that it gets started in a greenhouse, and then you get it in the ground and you see it grow. Or you have, my, in my case, the calving that takes place starting in early April and goes through till pretty much Thanksgiving. Uh, it, it never, ever ceases to amaze me. And thus I have respect for life to see that blob come out of the back of a cow and drop on the ground <laughs> and get up. Yeah. almost immediately and shake itself off. The mother cleans it off and it goes over <laughs> instinctively to suck on its mother's teat so that it will survive. How in the, I mean, how can you not believe in some superior power? It's a, it's an amazing reality. People hear me tell the story and they, oh, you're exaggerating. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, no, it is. It is amazing the way the seeds spring forth and such a tiny seed can make such a big plant. We just hatched some chickens a few weeks ago, and I had never hatched eggs in the house, and it was quite the experience to just contemplate that that little creature could be encased in that egg. <laughs> yeah. You know, so... 
Yeah, it's it is. I mean, not to be overdone because the people that we're talking to, for the most part, although there's a lot of people that don't understand how things grow, children think that milk comes from the store, and that uh, when they get an apple, they think it came out of a crate. So there's that. There's an educational process, but uh, bringing in uh, the things that make us better, and I think what you're describing, what I'm describing, make us better farmers, don't you? And and we get oh, this definitely. from others who are around. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. What sort of challenges do you face on hazard-free farming getting seeds? In getting what? Seeds. There's all the seeds. The, the push of oh, getting yes. the big companies to control everything, and it's not the kind of seeds that we want. So I wonder where you get your seeds. Well, you know, when I started this little project back in 2012, I bought – maybe 20 pounds of corn seed from this company and 10 pounds from that company. And so that first year we planted the corn and um, it was all heirloom. We grow a red corn, a blue corn, yellow, white, and a flint corn. Mm -hmm. So five kinds. And we basically had to supply our own seed. And that has pretty much stayed true other than our hollis oats and sometimes the farrow, I have bought seeds. But everything else I grow, I pretty much am finding a small amount and then growing it out in our nursery mm-hmm. and then taking it to the field. Because I do a lot of hulled ancient grain, I, I, I wanted to – there isn't a selection out there. You really can't find einkorn seed. No. In any amount or um, what's the market zero. for that though, Andrea? What's the market for that kind? Is it especially market like around here? We have what we call Brazilian corn, which is really just um, uh, corn, cow corn, silage corn that we mm-hmm. leave out too long so that it turns different colors. I mean, there's well, yeah. I mean, for all these things, it the decision making and my thinking was that a. I like heirloom seed. I like open pollinated, and I needed something specialty. I was already had a market established in Chicago in terms of my vegetables, which I did a lot of odd things for my chefs because I understand that they're always craving creativity. And hence, we, you know, I decided we're going to offer all these different types of corn so that they have different flavor profiles. Mm -hmm. So, So, go ahead. I'm sorry. Our market is a market that I essentially created. Yeah. That's you know, what I, one of my yeah. chefs said one day, I said, what do you want this year? What are you interested in? And he's like, I don't know. You're the one that tells me what I want. Uh-huh. You so, know, and that's when you realize, wow, you know, I, I am making a marketplace here. Mm-hmm. Do you find uh, your customers all, uh, you explained earlier on, but I'm not sure I grasped it all. Is it all a restaurant? Or do you sell at the farm as well? We did sell at the farm when we had the vegetables, but we have taken that piece out just because it didn't make sense once we dropped the vegetable operation. Um, The majority of my sales are wholesale to restaurants and Mm co-ops. And then um, I have a whole host of people that are, you know, bakers and people that that put up food and things like that, that they'll buy my oats and make uh, granola and cereal and things like that. And then we do a little bit of retail on the website. It's a very specialized thing that you're doing. One of the reasons that I have respect for you, Andrea Hazard, Andy, to her friends. One of the things 
that is a defining idea now in the world of agriculture is what to do if you are in suburbia, or even more specifically, what do you do for urban farming? You've heard a lot of conversation. We've talked about it a lot here in the American Family Farm, the social motivations of urban farms. Two-thirds of the urban and suburban farmers have a social mission that goes beyond food production and profits. The uh, the people who are doing this in New York City, for example, uh, say that the reason they're doing it is because they were interested in food security, educating the locavores who are using their food, uh, building the community and helping the community help them. That is, they get people to volunteer and also producing food for the market. They're all socially very acceptable. It's pretty amazing how the media, the social media, I'm talking about Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, things like that, the kind of information that's being passed back and forth, and food entrepreneurs that are being created out of uh, the interest in urban, uh, rather urban farming. Urban farms concerned with factors beyond food production. Uh, they've incorporated a lot of the the mission statements that you read on some of these things. I mean, it's long ways from when I was a kid. The farmers didn't have any mission statements. <laughs> they bought seeds, put them in the ground and grew stuff to feed themselves and their neighbors. They maybe sold stuff on the farm and they fed it to their cows so they could have the cows give milk. And, and that's what they were doing. But now we have this intricate web of connection. A lot of farmers are learning about farming and how to farm and how to invest in the right crops, that sort of thing, by being on social media. Uh, so social media and motivation is what I think motivates a lot of people who are working in suburban farming and, more importantly, in urban farming. We'll continue our conversation with Andrea Hazard, spend a few more minutes talking about what she's looking forward to, what is the year going to be like for her. She's speculating in the market. That, too, is part of farming. I find when I'm talking about this, it sort of is a reflection on my lifestyle of being busy. There are those of us who are addicted to being busy. Uh, being busy when I was younger, I thought uh, something that um, would help me survive. I would be successful if I was busy. And then I get to focus on working hard and working long hours. Don't stop uh, multitasking, uh, doing a lot of different things. So I want to talk to uh, Andy about that as well. How does she spend her time and make sure that it's uh, productive? Because I think uh, that being busy in and of itself doesn't work, but being busy, uh, task-oriented busyness uh, is uh, an organizational thing. Maybe that's as much as I can put a fine handle on it. Uh, how organized are you? Because normally we never have enough money to pay more help, so we better be organized. How does she do that? We'll find out in a moment here on Good Day, the American Family Farmer. After the hour, you're listening to the Good Day American Family Farmer Hour. I'm Doug Steffen with Andy Hazard from HazardFreeFarm.com. As I think about our exchange in this hour, uh, you're, by the way, for those who remember uh, Winnebago County in uh, suburban Chicago, we're talking about the 
market and that sort of thing. And we've talked about spirituality. I wonder what impact the web has. I just I was just posting some things. Twitter at Good Day Show uh, is my handle. I wonder how you use or do you need to use in the kind of farming you're doing social media to promote or do you use it to educate yourself? You know, uh, I'm not a huge social media person um, in terms of consuming it, but we do use it, you know, our Facebook and so on and so forth. And it's a little bit of both. You know, there's posts on our Instagram about we hosted a wedding, the chicks that hatched, and then it'll be a shot of the grain. And, you know, it's just a little uh, my life. It's about my life. And so uh, we do use it, but I wouldn't say that it's, it's a massive part of our marketing. No. All right. Well, you don't need a different area. But I, I also wonder, as we get into the uh, sort of early summer, people are beginning to prepare for the farm fairs because they send uh, a message about what we are achieving. You see, most every state has a fair, a farm fair in August or September. My God, I'm pinching myself thinking I'm talking about August, September, October already. <laughs> but we're, you know, into the 4th of July weekend and so people are thinking about that sort of thing and how much farming there is farming is so varied um even though we've seen an era of specialization in almost everything uh, there are a lot of people uh who uh, i'm looking at some of the parades the old tractors people uh with you know that are hay farmers i basically now i'm i'm a fellow that grows hay sells hay um uh, i just i think about how we present ourselves, and the problem, the reason I asked you about social media is that most people outside of our own circle don't know we exist. We don't invite people to come into our circle enough so that they learn, and going to the state fairs, Eastern State Fair, for example, is a circus. Uh, it's not as much about agriculture as you'd like to think it would be. Um, and so, uh, you know, the people come and they have rides and games and things, but there's no real... There is some, but there's not a real focus on agriculture. And I wonder what you think we ought to do to fan out and bring more people into our circles, because it can only be better all the way around, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a few years ago, I worked for University of Illinois Extension, and the local foods work group uh, came up with an idea to do a farm tour, and we call it the Open Fields Tour. It just took place last weekend. So I think there were seven farms. We use a Google map. It's a self-guided tour. And people from all over can just stop into your farm during the open period, and they get a little tour. And that has been a tool that I think is really interesting because it's kind of a view of a farm that you don't really ever get the opportunity to see. And all sorts of farms were on the tour. You know, one gentleman did potted plants and strawberries and raspberries. And um, Jackie did, they raised cattle for beef. And me, I do the grain thing. And there was a vegetable farm. So, you know, it's a really good way to open your doors to the community. And it was promoted heavily into Rockford and the surrounding areas. And I promoted it in Chicago. Um and I think it's a unique way to, to really get people out to the farm because once they see the farm and they, they get a sense of what agriculture is, they become fans and they really they connect with it. Yeah, they do. That's why I brought people into my farm, uh, bring them into the barn, 
I have a like a, a school, the alleyway into the dairy barn is filled with pictures and information from books about various breeds of cows, how they get pregnant, gestation period, that sort of thing. And then they go in the barn with the cows. Are there. What I find more often than not is the young children are afraid because the cows are big. And that's the only but they're, they've been taught to be afraid of of things that are big. When, in fact, the cows, my cows are as sweet as could be. I raise them as pets. Uh, there may be 100 cows on the farm, but I know the name of all of them, and I can go up to them and bring any child, any age, up to them and not be worried uh, that there's going to be something that will happen that will be embarrassing or will hurt. You don't bring them into a pasture where there's a bull with a bunch of heifers, but you, know, you, <laughs> you, you can use some common sense. And I think that's what people need because we're getting so detached. So... Um, there's a good lesson in this, a lot of great lessons, actually, Andrea, from what you're doing. Congratulations to you and your family for seeing the light, as it were. Keep it going. Andrea Hazard, the website for her farm is hazardfreefarm.com. I bet you can go there and get all kinds of ideas from her on what may work on your farm. This is the American Family Farmer. I'm Doug Steffen. Doug Steffen.